0: good evening this is Doug Taylor and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs it is Sunday August 22nd and we are starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 Proverbs 15 3 and the verse reads in all places are the eyes of God he sees evil and good in all places are the eyes of God he sees evil and good Now, just as review, uh, and for those of you that have just recently joined us, the process that we use is before we try to analyze what the verse means, we try to ask all the questions that we can around the verse. Uh, Questions of things that don't make sense, things we would need to define, uh, things that Uh, we would need to understand in order to extract out of the verse what King Solomon is trying to tell us so in this case what kinds of questions come to mind when you look at this verse in all places are the eyes of God he sees evil and good okay Linda thank you how does he see with eyes good and bad yeah I mean God's not physical, so what is that about? Excellent question. So we want to find out, what does what is, what is that phrase, the eyes of God, mean? got to be metaphorically referring to some attribute um, because we know God is not physical. So we'll have to figure out what that's about. Any other questions? Let me add a couple to the list. Um, why does King Solomon even have the second half of this verse? I mean, if God sees everything, well, then obviously he sees good and evil. So, why does King Solomon bother to even tell us that? And then, what do the two halves of the verse have to do with each other? In other words, what's what's King Solomon's point here altogether? So, Rabbi Moskowitz Uh, who is my uh, mentor and teacher in the uh, the book of Proverbs uh, shared like this there are 13 principles of faith in Torah Judaism two of them are these one that God knows everything and another is that there is reward and punishment now if God knows everything, the question is, how does God know you? He doesn't have eyes and see you, so how does He know you? And is it possible for us to know how He is aware? So, Rabbi Moskowitz said he heard the following from Rabbi Chait that God made the Big Bang. Okay, you're familiar with that? The, uh, the Big Bang that uh, is understood to have uh, suddenly started the universe. And in the Big Bang are all the causes in the physical world. So everything in, uh, uh, in, in the universe would have come from that. Everything in the Big Bang, uh, you know, it started all in one spot. Uh, and uh, and came out. So God knows all of this and all the things that came out of the Big Bang in one shot. So this this is a different type of knowing than the way that us humans know. A human starts with the results and the effects that we see out in the world and then we go backwards and look at causes uh, so you know we we see an apple fall from the tree and so okay then we try to theorize what's going on that caused the apple to fall from the tree but God knows everything from the beginning it's like complete knowing And there's an additional piece in here, in addition to all the observable causes and effects in the physical world, there's this thing called free will. Now all we know is cause and effect, but the Rambam, Maimonides, says that God has other knowledge other than cause and effect. In other words, he has additional knowledge besides that, so that God can predict free will through this other knowledge and it's not a knowledge that we have when in in terms of free will when you look at cause and effect and my understanding of of the nature of free will is that we look at causes and we see effects uh, of various things you know you drop a pencil on the table and you hear a noise Uh, or um, you know you throw a ball and it sails through the air and hits something and you know all kinds of physical cause-and-effect stuff but when you get to free will there is no explanation of it in other words it's it's a uh, a cause-and-effect chain that you go backwards on and once you hit free will you can't go any farther backwards it there is no explanation of what causes a person to um, in terms of, of an act of free will to go one direction or the other. So, free will is outside of cause and effect. We tend to explain things in terms of cause and effect. You know, this happened, caused that to happen, caused that to happen. And in the psychological world, if everything were cause and effect, then a skilled psychologist would be able to go backwards in a person's history and figure out exactly why a person did each act in their lives. You know, like, he hit this guy because his parents hit him, and that occurred because of this, and so on and so on. And you, in other words, if if you had the information, you could trace backwards all the things that happened to a person. But there is this thing called free will, and it's outside of cause and effect. So you can't go further in explaining because it doesn't operate in accordance with the normal cause-and-effect process so we don't have a completely deterministic system free will is uh, you could say a wild card okay yes Prescott its if we had you know a completely cause-and-effect situation you could virtually set up a mathematical equation going backwards and see exactly why everything occurred Except for free will. And free will introduces uh, a a wild card into into the system. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that some people think that God is watching them. And he said, God is not watching. He knows, but he's not watching over you. Um, not in the sense that, you know, we sort of think of someone physically standing there with their eyes on you. Um, and, and this can help us deal with our conscience, because by reviewing this idea, we can help remove from ourselves this incorrect idea that, oh, I better be careful, God's watching me, you know, kind of like a stern schoolmaster you know, standing there in the corner, but they've always got their eyes on you, and so, boy, if you make a wrong move, they're going to whack you on the knuckles with a ruler. That's not the approach. Um, the, uh, and, and so we'll, um, we'll get into that. The second principle of the 13 principles of faith that I mentioned earlier is that there is reward and punishment. And the ultimate reward is the world to come. And the worst punishment a person could get is destruction of his or her soul. Other punishments are in the laws of nature where you get consequences. You know, like um, if, you, if you go out into a mosquito-infested area with a bare shirt on, you're going to get bit. Okay? That's consequences. Um, you know, if you go out and in, in, uh, if you were to go, you know, play on the freeway... In rush hour, you're likely to get hit. You know, very clear cause and effect consequences. So, Rabbi Moskowitz asked, is Solomon talking about the principle here that God just knows? Or is he talking about the idea that you get punishment and reward based on what you deserve? And so he said like this, he said, God watching over me, the idea that someone is looking at me is a conscience thing but God does know you in every possible way but it's a different view of uh, the information and that can remove your sort of guilt and fear that you get from the conscience and move it to looking at it from a different standpoint which is God is aware of you and knows you through the causes he's not your father he's not your mother He's not like an angry dad that's about to whack you, but he's aware of you and knows you through the causes of things. Now, because of the nature of the Book of Mishle, uh, Mm -hmm. Rabbi Moskowitz suggested that this verse must have to do with reward and punishment because Proverbs is a practical book and God has to relate to me here in a way that I can understand. So he said like this. He said, a good act is only as good as your motive. If you do a good act, and you're an evil person, it's not really a good act. So, uh, you know, if if a... Um, Uh, To take a really simple example, a really evil guy uh, for a very bad motivation, maybe because he's trying to hide from the authorities, helps a little old lady across the street. Well, he did a good act, but his motivation was bad. So it's not really a good act. So Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say that the only way we could know if a person does a good act depends on who he is. And God knows what motivates you, okay, as to whether you're good or not good. If you do evil, you're evil. If you do good, then, okay, it's questionable depending on your motive. In other words, if we see a person do an evil act, okay, that's an evil act. If we see them doing a good act, then it could be good, but it depends on their motive. Now, when we start out in life we should start with halacha, Torah Law. We have to keep Torah Law and we've talked about this in other classes. We don't have any choice about that. We obey God even though we don't necessarily understand the benefits. Okay? And we have to do this within our own framework. And even if we have a proof it's not usually the proof that motivates us. Generally proofs don't motivate people usually in the religious realm, it's some type of religious emotion that we have. That's usually the first step for most people. And these are wrong motives, but we all start out with wrong motives. For example, if you think about, you know, uh, starting out as a young child in, in school, you know, you may be motivated to try to pass a test because... Um, you'll get a good grade and your parents will be happy with you or the teacher says she'll give you a piece of candy or or whatever Uh, and uh, Maimonides even indicates you know for for young children for example we promise them something in order to get them to learn until they grow out of that so we all start with wrong motives and eventually hopefully grow our way out of those wrong motives into correct motives then we study So we've started out with halakha, with the rules we have to follow. Then we study the reasons behind the halakha, the commandments. Or we study musr, which is how to make correct decisions in life and look at life correctly. And many of the commandments have to do with a training of the mind. So they help you to see that this is the best possible life. And that level of relationship, when you're operating at that level of of seeing, um, that is is fear of God. In other words, fear of God, as we've discussed before, is fear of consequences. And I'm talking about real consequences, not like childish consequences of God's going to zap me or something like that. I relate to God through the practical life. And that according to Rabbi Moskowitz is a true motive of relating to God okay I do it because I see the rationale and I see the true idea now an even higher level is a love of God and seeing clearly his systems and being so attached to uh, the idea of those systems and the creator uh, of those systems that you have a true uh, love of Hashem So if a person keeps all the commandments but he does it because he wants to be accepted by his parents or maybe he has a fear of eternal punishment or something like that that's not necessarily a true motive. But we develop in this. It's a developmental process. So how do you develop in this? Rabbi Moskowitz suggested three things that you can do to develop number one when you're in a class or when you read a book get the idea as clearly as possible the quality of understanding the idea is more important than the quantity I think we've discussed this before that it is more important to understand one idea clearly than many ideas superficially so when you're reading or when you're, you're in a classroom, try to understand the idea as clearly as you can. And interestingly, when you're reading a book, we, we tend to have this thing in our society uh, about covering a lot of ground. Like, oh, I've got to read through this whole book. Yet it might be way more important for you to spend, you know, several days, even weeks, on the first chapter. Uh, and not to try to cover the rest of the book, but just understand the ideas in that chapter. Um, I understand that one uh, great uh, Torah scholar took the Dialogues of Plato and he read one page, just one page, and then he would spend the rest of the day thinking about that one page only, Asking himself, why did Socrates say it that way and not this way? And why did he go down that road and not this road? And he very carefully analyzed just that one page. I mean, that's not a lot of material. But he went deeply into that. And then the next day he'd cover another page and went into that deeply and so forth. And he said it profoundly impacted his thinking. That level of going into depth of a really great thinker like Socrates. The second thing Rabbi Moskowitz suggested is review. Now, part of the reason this is so important is we're trained against it often in school and in society. What are we trained about to do in, in school and society? Memorize information, spit it back to a teacher, you know, put it back down on the test. But review is not a memory process. Review is where I go over and over that idea again and again, every time fresh, every time as if it's the first time, and I don't skip steps. So it's not to try to um, make sure you know that I have memorized you know the seven steps from getting to from point A to point B, but it's about exploring and making the journey new each time so that I clearly go through it as if it's new that's real review because it opens up the possibility for new learning and new understanding It's hugely important when your mind sees uh, something clearly and you review it again like it's the first time you can end up seeing things you didn't see before and that can help affect who you are Interestingly, this sometimes happens um, in movies. Uh, my, uh, my sons have told me they'll go see a movie and they watch it once, and then maybe they'll see it again, and they pick up things that they didn't see the first time. New un- in understandings or insights or details or things like that. So when you go over something uh, you know, new uh, and fresh, you can see things that you didn't see before and that affects who you are, affects your understanding. The third thing is that from a philosophical standpoint Rabbi Moskowitz made this observation don't act on it. In Halakha, which is Torah law, yeah you have to force yourself to do the act but in the world of philosophy the idea is to make yourself a different person. Now you have to act according to who you are. You cannot pretend to be someone that you're not. So it's a matter not of trying to, you know, grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and make yourself different. But it's a matter of understanding the idea and allowing the idea to affect you. So, for example, if you like to watch television, but you sort of realize, well, television isn't very good use of my time, and yet you you know, you really want to, muscling yourself not to do it is not the answer. The answer is to just go over the ideas about, say, what television does and the value to you of other things and so forth, and just let those ideas roll through your mind. And then it just happens. But if you try to do it, it's your conscience forcing you to do it, and that's not who you are at that point. And you can't pretend on this stuff. I mean, you can, but it doesn't get you re- where you really want to be. It doesn't affect real change. Okay. And Linda, you said, yeah, like the cycle of reading of the Torah. Yeah, every time we read the Torah, and that's going back to the review point, you see new ideas in it. We never get done. We always see new ideas. You know, we can keep going over and over to endless depth. But we need to let the philosophical ideas kind of roll through our minds and affect us not us grabbing ourselves by the scruff of the neck and forcing ourselves because then we're um, we're essentially denying who we are you know I'm like pretending to be at a level that I'm not and that's just not true that's that's kind of a it's like a, a lie to ourselves you know we're trying to fool ourselves and that will not get us where we ultimately want to be so when you're in a class or reading a book or even you know watching a movie or having a discussion try to get the idea as clearly as possible then review it go over all the steps and do that many times and then don't try to force yourself to act on it unless it's Torah law in which case you have to but philosophically if it's a philosophical issue let it roll around there and let it affect you. It's a little bit of a drip, drip, drip process. Um, and if, um, I can't recall if I've shared this analogy, but uh, it, it's one that was shared with me years ago of the analogy of red dye. Uh, if you have a white sheet and you want to get that sheet to be red, so you put some water in a, in a big vat and you pour some red dye in it. Now you pick up the sheet and you dunk it in in the red dye and you pull it out. Now if you look at it right then it will still look white. But you dunk it in and you pull it out and you dunk it in and you pull it out and you dunk it in and you pull it out. And if you do that enough times slowly it will start to turn pink. And then if you keep doing that put it in, pull it out, put it in, pull it out, over time the sheet will slowly start to turn red. Now on any individual dunking and pulling out, you probably can't tell the difference in color between what it looked like when you dropped it in and when you pulled it out. But every time you do that, it is minutely changing a little bit so that over time the sheet becomes red. The dunking in and pulling out is analogous to reviewing an idea. You may not notice a difference. But that idea is slowly having an effect on you, and every time you review it, it's like dunking that sheet and pulling it out of the red dye. And over time, those ideas affect you. Okay, let me pause here and see if we have any questions before I've just uh, one one or two more points I want to make on this verse. Any questions so far? So, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out there are three pleasures that you shouldn't partake in. Uh, and this verse is talking about evil and good. The first one is if something's prohibited by the Torah. You know, if it's prohibited by the Torah, that's halakha, and we have to follow halakha. So you shouldn't do that. The second is that if there are negative consequences, and you want to be cognizant of that, if there are consequences to a particular behavior and they're not consequences that you like, then that's probably not a pleasure that you should partake in. Uh, You know, there are certain, uh, you know, drugs. I'll take as an example. Somebody could say, Wow, you really get a nice feeling off that. Yeah, but it destroys your brain. (laughs) So... There's a very negative long-term consequence to that. And then he said, uh, and and by the way, particularly pleasures that are addictive to you, uh, those can be very dangerous. He also pointed out that if you have, and this is the third, if you have two pleasures and one is greater than the other, then you pull out from the lower one in order to get the greater one. So, the greatest pleasure is learning. Uh, And so, if, if you force yourself to do that by conscience, then you'll never truly enjoy it. But if you can enjoy the physical world, then you can also enjoy learning. Some people take the position that, Well, I should deny myself pleasures. You know, even though they're halakhically allowable and there aren't any negative consequences to them. It's like, well, why would you do that? God created those things for us. Um, And if I can't enjoy those, how am I ever going to enjoy the greatest pleasure, which is learning? But if I can enjoy the physical world within the constraints of what's allowed by halakha, then I'm in a position to be able to enjoy learning. And finally he pointed out don't underestimate how much you can gain in even just like an hour a day of learning. The accumulation over time can be huge. Okay, This is not about beating yourself up into doing this. This is about just engaging yourself in some learning and doing what you can and trying to do that every day. And what happens is pretty soon you start to leave off things that used to be pleasurable to you because you'd really rather go be involved in something say, of have a higher pleasure order like learning it's not about guilting yourself into it it's all about being realistic with who you are and you know slowly letting the ideas affect you and pretty soon you get to a point where somebody says gee you know you wanna go out to see this movie It's like, well, yeah, I'm kind of interested in the movie, but gosh, I got this, you know, learning at home that I really want to do, and it's not because I feel like I shouldn't. It's that I'm truly more drawn to the learning than to anything else, and that's not to say that going to see a movie is a bad thing either, because some movies can stimulate learning and discussion of ideas and uh, very interesting insights. So we learn from this verse that God knows us differently than we know ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And we shouldn't be frightened of this like we're being watched by a mad dad, because that's not accurate. But rather, we should operate in accordance with fear of consequences and take the very best actions that we can. Okay, any questions on this verse or any of these ideas. Good, thank you. Okay, let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 4. And 15:4 reads, a healing tongue is a tree of life, and he who distorts it his spirit will be broken. A healing tongue is a tree of life, And he who distorts it, his spirit will be broken. So as you stare at those words, what kind of questions come to mind? What doesn't make sense? What's confusing? What seems obscure? What would we have to understand in order to get to the essence of what King Solomon's trying to teach us here? A healing tongue is a tree of life, and he who distorts it, his spirit will be broken. Prescott, thank you. What is a tree of life? Great question. Naomi, why tongue is here for both, where in the last chapter it was heart. Okay, good. And Terry, excellent. Who's broken? Spirit will be broken. Excellent. Good questions. Um and Rabbi Moskowitz added an interesting one. Why does it say, first of all, what's a healing tongue? I mean, it could just say tongue, but uh, why does it say healing? And why does it say healing tongue and not a pure tongue? So, the Ibn Ezra and Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, two of the great commentators, seem to hold similarly that a healing tongue is talking about musr. And as we've discussed, Musser is best probably defined as the science of the consequences of your actions. It's all about learning consequences uh, in your, your everyday life. So a tongue that is speaking Musser, speaking about the science of the consequences of your actions, is considered healing in other words it's talking about correct ideas consequences the difference between facts and interpretations and it's focused on reality and how best to operate within that reality so why is this type of speech considered a tree of life so the tree of life means one of two things number one It'll give you a good physical life, or two, it'll give you a good psychological life. Okay, now let me pause here and uh, got a couple of comments. Uh, righteous, you said mine says soothing. There are different interpretations, or different translations uh, of the verses, and sometimes they will interpret a word differently that actually changes the interpretation of the verse um, so i'm assuming it's referring to soothing tongue uh and that's a slightly different nuance than what the Ibn Ezra and the Rabina yonas seem to be uh, referring to but um yeah and it that's uh, uh art scroll uh and so we could you know Go down that road and, and and probably come up with a slightly different interpretation of the verse, which also could be valid. Uh, there are a number of cases where the commentators take different approaches uh, on the verse, and it took me a while uh, to get used to the idea that there could be two interpretations of the verse that were different and both valid. Um, so uh, uh, that one could also be so, and. You know, understandably, because that's the position that the uh, art scroll uh, considers. Um, Janine, you ask, what else is considered as healing? I'm not sure of the questions that you're asking, so maybe you could elaborate. Uh, I'm I'm missing the point on that one. Oh, what else is healing about the tongue? Um, In this case, I think it's, I understand it's referring to the speech, in other words, tongue is a is a metaphor for speech, and the healing part is that if you are talking about musr, about the science of the consequences of your actions, and you, use, you are using your tongue to do that, that that's considered healing uh, for uh, other people, and could be healing for you as well because you're reviewing correct ideas. In other words, it's healing in the sense of, Um, helping you find the best way through life and avoiding difficulties that could cause you pain. Now, if you're operating in the world of reality and considering consequences and the impact of your actions on others, then you're setting yourself up to live the best possible physical life that you can. I do not know of any better way to exist In the world you look at all the factors you look at all the consequences and then you make the best choices I mean what's a better way than that Uh, I mean that seems to be all that can be done by a human being as far as the physical world is concerned that doesn't mean that you can control the physical world um, because uh, you know there are some things that are outside of our control But the best way that I can live, given the fact that I live inside, you know, the laws of nature and a bunch of systems is to try to make the best analysis I can and then operate on the basis of that. Um, And yes, Prescott, uh, good example. Uh, A person has a problem and you go to somebody for advice. People go to counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, and they try to see the consequences of their actions. And sometimes it's easier to have someone from the outside. Uh, give us advice about that uh, and say, gee, you know, do you see what you're doing here? and Do you see what that leads to? And is that really a consequence that you want in your life? Um, and that can be a very, very helpful reflection to help heal a person's life, which I think gets us back to that first part of the verse, a healing tongue, a tongue that's talking about consequences is that tree of life for people. So the healing tongue these words of Musser can lead us to the best possible physical life. Now, we also exist psychologically. We have emotions. The nature of the emotions is conflict. I mean emotions generally tend to be the reason that we have conflicts in our lives. And generally it's because we resist reality in one form or another. Uh, Anger being probably one of the the simplest to illustrate. Uh, I got to the airport and they cancelled my flight and I'm mad. Now, I don't have any control over whether they cancelled the flight. That's one of those things that's outside of my control but that I have to live with. The anger is not caused by the flight. It is caused by the fact that I expected reality to be different than it was. And it didn't turn out the way I want and therefore I'm angry. If I were able to completely accept reality all the way along and had my emotions completely in line with that as far as I can tell I would virtually eliminate all my conflicts Now, but we have them. We all have them. We have these conflicts So we need to have an outlet uh, for those conflicts and one of the simplest ways to do that is through talking Uh, For example, through gossip Um, Now, if I do that, if I keep expressing negative emotions, if I keep gossiping about other people, if I keep operating without examining my emotions and I'm not dealing with them, then those emotions can catch up with me and destroy me. And I submit to you that that is what the second half of the verse is talking about. If you distort your tongue, your faculty of speech, that is, if you use it for foolish things, or as a vehicle for gossip, or to disparage others, or things like that, then you're operating from your emotions, and that can eventually break your spirit. So, the first half of the verse is saying that the way to life is the life of Musa. The life of recognizing and dealing with consequences of working within reality and of understanding and dealing with my emotions the second half is saying that going the other direction living the life of the emotions and having that be the main thing that's driving me is going to result in a broken spirit because I'm going to have a life of conflict and that is almost certainly going to make my life miserable and can ultimately destroy me. Okay, any questions on that verse? All right, in that case, thank you, Linda. Let's move on. Uh, we're now up to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse five. And the verse reads, "A fool despises the Musser or guidance of his father, and he who guards guidance, will become crafty a fool despises the guidance of his father and he who guards guidance will become crafty so what are the questions what would we need to understand or define in order to have this verse make some sense to us ah Naomi excellent question why fathers only yeah, why doesn't it say parents? That's a good question. Let me actually tackle that one. Uh, and I'm going to suggest that th- I think Proverbs takes the position that generally uh, the laws of Musser or the ideas of Musser and consequences are passed down from the father to the children, as opposed to both parents. I I don't have an explanation for that, uh, but it seems like in the verses that I've seen, fathers get mentioned more often uh, than like father and mother combined, or parents as a plural. So that's that's my best answer, and I don't feel like it's a complete one, but uh, that would be my my best understanding um, Terry, you've said crafty seems to have negative connotations, yeah, and I think that is more as far as I understand, at least in the way that uh, I think we'll end up learning the the um, the verse, that is uh, a little more about the English language use of the word crafty, which you're right does have that little sense of being sneaky, but hold that thought because we're going to touch on that. Um, and Janine, you said, "What if the guidance is not correct?" Uh, in the first half, the uh, the verse actually, as I understand it, reads, "A fool despises the musser of his father." So presumably, the father is teaching us or teaching uh, the science of consequences. Uh, and, and so that would presumably be correct Moser in the second half he who guards guidance uh again I think it is presuming that the guidance is uh, is proper and not improper but you raise a good point because it's not just what somebody teaches us it would have to be correct ideas uh, in order to qualify um, Okay, and Naomi, you said yes, and uh, I think forefathers passed on. Uh, I'm not sure I fully understand that comment. Uh, So maybe if I've missed something, you can add to that a little bit. Ah, Linda, who's a fool and what's a fool? Okay, Uh, good question. Good question. Um, And... Also, let me add to the question list, why does a fool despise the Musser of his father? Uh, And what does it mean to guard guidance? And What does that word guard mean? And to get to your point, Terry, why is someone who guards guidance, why will they become crafty? And what do we mean by crafty here? So, you only guard something where you recognize that it has value in other words when you guard something you must realize that there is something that could harm it so you're guarding it from harm now what could harm you in the area of Musser in the area of the sciences of the science of the consequences of your life so I'll suggest there are two different aspects here First, you could learn musr, and your emotions could still affect you. So, you have to protect yourself against those emotions. I mean, you need to have the ideas clear in your mind. Even if you've studied for years, you can't stop learning, because then the emotions can sneak in and affect you. That's one aspect of guarding. In this process, there's no let-up. You have to be constantly involved in the learning process and in constantly guarding against the intrusion of the emotions. It is my understanding that this never stops. It is a lifetime process. You never get done with this. The emotions are always there waiting. You can get to a very, very high levels, but you can't ever you know, completely let your guard down the other aspect here is that as soon as you make a mistake you need to immediately analyze what caused you to fail and what causes you to fail is some emotion usually some aspect of your personality so you constantly need to be reviewing your actions you need to not only understand the mistake that you made But you need to look for the underlying cause of the mistake. Now, it says, he who guards guidance will become crafty. In other words, a person who's doing this, who's constantly involved in being careful about uh, Musser and in analyzing what happens to him and making sure he understands the underlying cause, how does that make him crafty? Because the emotions are subtle and they sneak up on you they tend to operate when you're not aware of them so you train yourself to watch your emotions and how they come up and how they sneak up on you you're aware of the subtleties and then you become crafty in dealing with the subtleties so this process gets you involved in becoming basically crafty and sneaky with regard to your own emotions so that you can tell when they're sneaking up on you and uh, you set up ways in your life to deal with that now the fool doesn't care about this and just wants to operate in accordance with his emotional desires so getting back to your um, uh, Let's see who raised the question, Linda, uh, about who's a fool and what's a fool. A fool is a person who is operating, in generally speaking, a fool is a person who is operating in accordance with his emotions, and so he leads with those and doesn't think through the consequences of what he's doing. Okay, an example might be you know a road rage situation, where guy pulls in front of you and, you know, immediately you are so incensed by it that you roll down your window and happen to have a, you know, a pop, full can of pop with you and you throw it at his car without even thinking about it. You're just so mad at that he pulled in front of you, you just throw it at his car. That's the case of a fool or a person acting foolishly. Why? Because that emotion, that anger, that rage is is right out there in the forefront and you're leading with it. You're not stopping yourself to say, uh, yeah, I'd really like to shoot holes in that guy's tires, but that would probably not be a very smart thing to do because I would get arrested and I would go to jail and, you know, nobody would particularly care that he pulled in front of me because they would be so upset at me that I shot his tires out and da-da-da-da-da. So, uh, a fool is a person that's just interested in fulfilling his emotional desires. So... He despises the Musser that he'll get from his father. It's like he doesn't care about it. Who cares about this consequence stuff? I just want my emotional desires fulfilled. That's the fool. The wise person is the one who takes into account the consequences and very carefully guards that. And so that uh, he watches his emotions he learns to understand his emotions and he keeps his eye on the subtlety of his emotions and figures out ways to triumph over them so that he is leading with his intellect and not having his emotions basically mess up his life and cause him to do things that will result in really uncomfortable consequences for him okay any questions on this verse? okay thanks to Uh if no questions I think we have time for one more verse so let's go on to Proverbs chapter 15 verse 6 and it says the house of the righteous has enduring strength and with the coming of the wicked it is ruined the house of the righteous has enduring strength and with the coming of the wicked it is ruined <clears throat> so What are the questions? Okay, Louis, good. Why the house? Why isn't it just the righteous have enduring strength? Why does it say the house of the righteous? Very good. And we should probably also define what that is. What is the house of the righteous? And then, (laughs) Prescott, good. Don't let bad people in the front door. That's a very good point. And I think we will see in just a minute that that is... Key to, um, to understanding that. Ah, righteous, I love that. I have dogs for that. Um, uh, Janine, good. Why can't the house endure against the wicked? Very good question. Why is it that the coming of the wicked it's ruined? Um, excellent question. And interestingly, why does it say uh, with the coming of the wicked? Why doesn't it just compare houses? In other words, the house of the righteous has enduring strength, maybe, and the house of the wicked is a mess or a ruin. Why does it say with the coming of the wicked? Uh, And Linda, good. Uh, What does the wicked destroy? Excellent. So, the Rabbeinu Yonah says that this verse is talking about where the Father is righteous and the Son is righteous is not righteous so in light of that I will suggest that house is a metaphor for the household the family and why does it have enduring strength the effect of the physical world is dependent on a life of justice kindness and charity in other words if you do these things you can have success in the physical world we've talked about this in in previous classes it's not that you'll necessarily be wealthy which is how many in society define success but instead you'll have a life that is in line with reality that house the house of the righteous has enduring strength because it is operating in reality and according to the principles on which the Torah life is based but if you don't live that life then living a different life will affect your thinking process and that can ruin your success so if you have someone in the house or in your business who isn't righteous then they are operating in accordance with a mindset that is not in line with reality and that is going to negatively affect the outcome. So once the wicked comes, that ruins the righteous household because now that altered thinking process will begin to affect things. And since it's not in line with reality, it would seem that it has got to affect things in a negative way. And thus, with the coming of the wicked we have the ruin of the house of the righteous now going back to rabenu yona you've got a righteous father and a son who's not righteous so what is going to happen to the household the dynasty if you will when you've got a righteous father but a son who's wicked well eventually the son's going to get power and take over and he's not going to operate in accordance with reality and almost by definition he's going to have to have ruination because if he's not operating in accordance with reality he's eventually going to make mistakes and those mistakes are going to eventually be costly and eventually result in the ruination of the house Uh, and uh, so Prescott uh, the wicked trust no one, the righteous don't always think like a wicked, also very true. Uh, uh, the wicked do not tend to trust they're out just for themselves. The righteous clearly don't think the same way as the wicked and so I'll suggest that the verse is teaching us a very important lesson about who we allow into our house, and I'm not meaning just who physically walks through the front door but who we involve in our lives and in our households, who is in our important, our sphere of important people in our lives, the people that we spend a lot of time with and work with, people who we do business with and associate with. It's very important that we're cognizant of who those people are and where they're coming from. Because once that wicked person, the one with the altered thinking, comes into the household, then we've already got the effect starting uh, of an incorrect way of looking at life and all the consequences associated with that. Okay. Any questions on this verse? Okay. In that case, we will stop for tonight. Thank you all very much for coming, and I hope you will be able to join us next week.